Well, we're going to be in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel today. And uh, while you might think that is a, a chapter about bankruptcy, uh, it is not. Or at least not the financial kind. Uh, more about spiritual bankruptcy. As things have been going well for King David and him establishing his kingdom, uh, we're about to enter into a really dark chapter uh, of his life for sure and uh, see how it affects a number of different people. Uh, the title for the sermon, we went through a couple of different iterations. Um, that one we decided not to go with, but, uh, but it is the story of David and Bathsheba. And so we decided on something a little bit more, a little bit more applicable for us in terms of what we see in that chapter and um, how we can identify some things maybe in our lives that need to be addressed. And that is breaking a chain before you break something else. David enters into this chain reaction where every single link goes deeper and deeper into this abyss of lust and sin. And and to be able to, to have broken one of those chains early on would save some disastrous consequences. And I hope that we can take this to heart and allow ourselves to look at, to look at our lives um, in the area of lust, not, not just sexual, um, but, the, but the different lusts that we uh, can encounter in life and be able to address some of those things with God's help. Now, in movies, the antics of someone covering up their mistake can be kind of entertaining or at least uncomfortably humorous. Um, but in real life, a lot of times covering up our mistakes and our sin is simply disastrous. And again, this is one such chapter where the consequences are pretty overwhelming. So let's go ahead and jump in. Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So even in the very beginning of this chapter, it seems like something is a little out of the ordinary. Right? The king would typically be in battle. You know, it was probably springtime when, you know, you can take the wagons and everything else without getting stuck in the mud. Um, but again, that's not the important part. The, the important part is that David is doing something different. Right? Link one, sometimes, is when things are abnormal. Now, that's not necessarily bad in and of itself. Things can be abnormal. And yet that can often be a trigger and an opportunity for us to explore sin. Link two, I think, is what we see more, which is, which is a, a real link. It's David stepping back a little bit from his roles that he would normally be having. Maybe a little bit of isolation, which again is sort of the devil's playground. Link number two, isolation. As we continue moving on into the story, it says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now again, I think one of the things that we will see, or rather one of the things that we won't see all throughout this chapter is people saying something. It doesn't appear that anyone said anything to stop him. And maybe it all seemed innocent from a third-party perspective at this point. I don't know what David sending someone meant. I hope it wasn't, hey, come here, who is that? Right? That's not... That's not what we want to do is invite other people into our sin. But what we don't see is someone saying, hey, David, you shouldn't be looking at that rooftop right now. That's not so appropriate. And it is a value of TGW that we can be a community where we can speak up for one another and to one another, and address things that we see in somebody else's life, at least asking the questions. This woman that he sees happened to be the wife of Uriah, one of David's mighty men. So someone that he was close with, someone he fought side by side with, presumably. And isn't it, and isn't it strange how many times we sin a bit against those closest to us? Eliam was one of the 30 uh, mighty men also, Bathsheba's dad. And so there's the, there are all these different relationships that are together. And, and I think we see that oftentimes nowadays too with different, different issues of affairs or abuse or manipulation. We have more opportunity maybe sometimes with those that are close to us to know how to pull strings, to know how to manipulate the situation. I think we see a few more links in this chapter. Um, Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. What's he doing on his couch in late afternoon? We might ask. It's probably a good question. Right? Was there a reason why he was staying back from home or staying back from the battle? Uh, maybe he was feeling low. Maybe he was feeling lazy. Maybe he was feeling depressed. Again, those might be some real issues that need addressed. But they're possible uh, playgrounds for sin as well. So he doesn't just stop, though, at looking. Right? He is looking. He's entertaining a thought. What did he know about Bathsheba? She was pretty. Again, I'm not saying that's not an important part in relationships, especially romantic relationships. Right? I was attracted to my wife. That was a part of our relationship, but it, it didn't stop there. And David's already married. Several times, in fact. So, right? So what are you doing, David? Why are you looking? But he's entertaining that thought. And rather than bouncing his eyes, rather than closing his eyes, he entertains the thought. And he goes one step forward. He pursues that thought with some actions. He's dipping his toes in the water. 
he asks about her. In fact, he sends someone to find out some information about her. Creepy, right? So he is dipping his toes into sin. And he doesn't stop with several things. One, that he was married. Two, that she was married. Three, that she was married to one of his men. I mean, all of these things would be huge red flags, stop signs that says, don't go further. And yet he did. In verse 4, it says, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Well, the word took has a number of different definitions. And it's hard to to pick the right one for this. Um, But you definitely wonder... um, You definitely wonder about the nature of that relationship. To be sure, there was a power differential. So it's nothing short of abuse. And it seems to be the fulfillment of what God told Israel kings would do. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 to 18, Israel asks for a king. And God says, well, here's what's going to happen. He's going to take. The king is going to take. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your fields. He's going to take, take, take. And while up to this point, for the most part, David seemed to be a giver, now he sees something that he wants. He lusts and he takes because he can. Again, there's no record of protest, either from Bathsheba or any other servant. But I want to be very clear. That's an argument from silence. Scripture is, is silent about her motivations. This is a story about David's sin, and it is really, really, really clear that his actions were sin. Okay, Well, guilt lies with each individual sinner in, in situations. The responsibility lies with David, right? He's the king. Responsibility lies with him. He has a duty, he has a responsibility to protect. And yet what he does is abuse. It's interesting, the, the parenthetical comment in there says Bathsheba was purifying herself. Uh, this would... This would undoubtedly be that she had just finished her period and, and is a, an insertion in this text that really proves that she wouldn't have been pregnant before. Well, what's interesting about the timeline, there's this, this gap. She returned to her house after the affair. And then she conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Well, there was some time that would have passed. And you wonder what David's thoughts were during that time. I assume 
he thought he got away with it. Again, there's no record of repentance. He just holds this secret. Now that he was done with Bathsheba, that he had used her for his purposes. Our link six, well, that's full-on immersion into sin. Right? Not just thinking about it, not just taking some... Some steps and dipping your toes in the water. Like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna walk by that picture or that magazine, or scroll through those on Netflix. I'm not actually gonna watch it. I'm just gonna get close to it, and then the full-on immersion into sin. Right? David dives in. And you would think that that would be the end of the chain. Seems like enough, right? That's, that's awful. And yet there's more links, unfortunately, to be added to this story. In verse 6, now that he has the news, David sent word to Joab. And he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wink, wink. Right? And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. It's a bit infuriating reading this as a, as a third party because we all know what's going on. We all know that, that at this point, David doesn't seem to care about the war. He's making small talk. He's making an excuse to bring Uriah in, have him go and wash his feet, probably a euphemism for sex. At least that's, that's how it seems to be taken. Right? Go home. Enjoy your wife. Cover up the pregnancy. That's what David is thinking. He doesn't appear to be thinking repentance at all. He's cover up my sin. Hide it. I'll get away with it. If I just do this one more thing, then all will be well. My reputation will be safe. And I can just move on with my life. Except, Uriah seems to be a much more righteous person than David. He's dedicated, perfect soldier. Now, please hear this. We are not advocating this for soldiers today, right? If you're home, enjoy your spouse, right? But at that time, um, Uriah seemed to be very dedicated to the Lord and his duty as a soldier, Like maybe he didn't want to be unclean and hinder the progress of the war. There are some Old Testament passages that that kind of talk about uncleanness and being out of the camp. And and so if he were to do this, he would probably not be able to be in the camp. And maybe, maybe in his mind that would hinder the battle. And there's just this, this huge juxtaposition between Uriah and the righteousness of Uriah and the unrighteousness of David at this point. 
David is lying and, and conniving and scheming, and Uriah is dedicated, seemingly to God, to his country, to his men, and even to his king. Link seven, we've got covering up the sin and lying, making excuses, bringing other people into this, right? So now we're in the cover-up. But things didn't go as planned with that either. So in verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Well, what should be praised in a soldier is, a, is an excuse for David to panic. He needs another shot to try this again. Now, it's interesting that Uriah's attitude seems to be more like what David's was. Right? When uh, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, it says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, that would be David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And this bothered him. Like this bothered David immensely. He wanted, he wanted the best for God. And here he was in this beautiful house and he wanted, to, he wanted to build a temple for God. And God wouldn't let him, but, but that attitude seems to be that attitude of Uriah, an attitude to be praised. Right? Someone who's not going to enjoy things because others aren't. Right, that unification with his men and, and others. He, he understands what's happening. He understands where Israel is at this point and what needs to happen for them to be victorious over their enemies. And he's not going to hinder that at all. So we add some more links, right? Now he's really digging in his feet. Okay, the first cover-up didn't work. He's going to try again. He's going to push. Right? No, really, Uriah, you need to go to your house. It's okay. And in 12, David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Again, allowing more time for this to happen, try and weaken, weaken his resolve. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So we continue to pile on sin after sin, trying to cover this thing up. Right now, he's, now he's sinning in not only his cover-up, but in the way he's doing this cover-up. He's causing someone else to be drunk. Now, one might fault Uriah a little bit for that. That's the only, that's the only part in this whole story that seems to give Uriah less of a, of a righteous name, that he allowed himself to get drunk. But again, 
this juxtaposition between Uriah and David is even more stark at this point because even drunk, Uriah still makes a more righteous choice than David did and does sober. And it gets worse. In 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Looking at this point, David's either going to be found out, right, in a few months. He's going to be found out or he needs to do something more drastic. Adultery was a capital crime. Now, whether, whether that was practiced at that time, I don't know so much, but David should have died. That was the penalty. Right? Sin deserves death. Uh, depending on the circumstances, maybe Bathsheba as well, who knows? Again, I don't want to go f- too far down that road. This is about David's sin. So instead of him taking the responsibility and accepting the penalty for his consequences, he wants to place that on someone else. He wants to give Uriah, who had done nothing wrong, the death penalty. And he's involving his nephew Joab in the murder as well, giving direct instruction to kill one of his mighty men. What's, what's so ironic in this whole situation is that Uriah carries his death warrant to Joab. And that difference between David's unrighteousness and Uriah's righteousness. David trusted Uriah so much to not open that letter Like David knew Uriah's character and he took advantage of that for his own evil purposes. So we got some more links to add. Now David is not just sinning. He is causing other people to sin, making them drunk, making people commit murder, or at least putting them in that situation where they have to decide. And he's going to commit murder. Right? It's, it's on him. The murder of Uriah, if that's how it goes, that's on him. In verse 16, And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Again, here is a conspicuous absence of someone saying, this doesn't sound right. We don't hear anything from Joab. Again, argument from silence. But but Joab followed the directions, killing on purpose at least Uriah, and it seems like some other people as well. So Uriah's blood 
is on David's head. And also, it seems, other people. Would they have made that same choice in battle if they weren't commanded by David to go to the heavy fighting and put these people there? So now it's not just Uriah, it seems. It seems there are other people that have fallen because of David's sin. They're dead because of David's sin. And he, Joab, instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So again, it's really clear that they were making poor battle plans. Right? This was, this was not what Joab would have done. David was a warrior. Right? He understands how battles work. It was a stupid decision, but it was, but it was his order. And now people are dead who undoubtedly didn't need to be. Certainly Uriah and maybe others. So we keep adding, we keep adding links to this chain. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab has sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David's response is, grief? Nope. Here's how he responds. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. No big deal. Just soldiers. Hmm. Air's getting heavy in DuPont, isn't it? Right? Just soldiers? Don't let this trouble you. Mm-mm. Right, to this chain, he adds hard-heartedness. The complete lack of concern for God's creation, the complete lack of concern for his people because he thinks he finally solved his problem that he created in the first place. This is a different David. It is not the David that we've seen before. All right, he cared greatly about his men and the lives of, of his, of even his enemies. But what he did is he had started down this chain. And one link led to another, led to another, led to another. And he was so obsessed and so focused on his sin and trying to get away with it, that everything else blacked out. 
all of the attitudes that he should have had, all of the concerns that he should have had, he was so focused on this one thing that could have been avoided anyway. And as we wrap up this chapter, unfortunately, we're still not done with the, with the consequences, but this is where we're going to end for today. But in verse 26, it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Understatement of the year, right? Now, after the morning, David took Bathsheba for his wife, which to some degree might have looked might have looked like he was this generous and kind king providing for one of his soldiers' wives. And so maybe we should just add another link for that too of this posing as someone righteous through his evil actions. He probably got to enjoy that reputation Right? It seems like he had maybe done that before with Abigail, where Abigail's husband had died. He was an evil man. David married her, provided for her. Um, again, not advocating <laughs> polygamy, but, but the idea of um, but the idea of providing for someone could be noble. And yet not in this case. In this case, he's simply covering that up. He's covering up the pregnancy. But of course, we're reading this thousands of years later, so it's not really covered up, is it? Sin has a tendency of finding the light. And if we remember in 1 Samuel, right? man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart, David's heart is very displeasing to the Lord at this point. And I do wonder also about this new relationship with David and Bathsheba. Right, he's now building this whole relationship. I'm assuming, again, argument from silence, But I'm assuming he didn't have that sit-down conversation with Bathsheba, said, I killed your your husband. I'm assuming, don't know. But now you've got a whole new relationship that's built on a secret that would be a devastating secret to have revealed. If we look in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, uh, he writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And some translations translate that lusts. right? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. These are things we want to feel. These are things we want to have. 
and the feeling like we deserve them. And that is a recipe for destruction. David's sin is all of these things. Lust, my friends, is insatiable. It is always unsatisfied and ultimately unsatisfying just by its very nature. Lust is wanting more, right? It's the root of addiction. To fall under its power is to abandon care for anyone else, as we see in this passage. And I'm guessing we've probably seen in, in our own lives or lives around us. Right? Lust is an abyss. If it has a bottom, it's death, but there's death all along the way as well. Lust does end in death. Death of innocence, death of finances, death of relationships, death of marriages, and physical death as well. I think it's easy to marvel at other people and how they'd be willing to give up their, their marriage or children or jobs or reputation for you know, alcohol, drugs, and sex, but that's the nature of lust. And I'm guessing some of us understand its path far too well. I think at certain points, we can feel really powerless to stop this train from going over the edge of the cliff. You're thinking whatever pleasure you're pursuing, you're hoping that it's worth it. Right? I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where I'm like, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, let's go. We're pushing boundaries and all of the consequences fade into the background or you just don't care anymore as you obsess about whatever it may be. Right? That's sin taking hold of our lives. That's the nature of sin. It's the nature of lust. And especially when our physical and spiritual lives are so interconnected, And things like addiction, the real miracle is that anyone can resist. But there is hope. And it's a a dark passage, it's a dark chapter, but I want to bring us into some encouragement because there is hope. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's the hope. And that's the hope that comes from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Okay, we can white-knuckle some things and hold on and resist some things, but without the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit... It's just a short-term strategy. We have to have the power of God to resist. And this is where we need to break the chain early on as well. I would say it gets exponentially harder the further down this chain you go to break it. It gets so much easier and easier just to follow that path right down into the abyss. It was possible, it was possible at any point in that chain for David to stop. It is possible at any point in this chain for us to stop 
but it's harder the further on we get. So I want to end with just a couple of, of different things. Um, one is that we do need to deal with sin. Right? This is the grace works. We want to deal graciously with sin, but friends, it is not gracious to allow sin to continue. It's not a gracious or loving thing. If you're looking at your kids, it's not gracious or loving to let them do something that is wrong. It's actually the most evil thing that we can do. So we need to be gracious in how we address sin. Right? We need to recognize that all of us are sinners as well. So we need to, we need to walk into those conversations with humility But we want, but we do want to address it, and we want to break those chains early on. And I think, I think this idea of sin and and how inescapable it seems, and how um, and how tied we are to certain tracks that we take. Right? I I want us. It should bring us to Jesus. It should bring us to his feet as we look at the consequences of sin. Right? Lust and sin results in death, always. The good news, though, the good news is that our sin, because of God's grace and his love for us, resulted in Jesus' death so that we could eventually have life. That's why Jesus went to the cross, is for the things that we have done already, for the things that we are doing right now, and the things that we will do that are contrary to God's will and desire. Right? That's the gift that God gives to us. Right? When, we, when we break the chain before we break something else, when we sin, something is always broken. Our relationship with God is always broken, but that can be reconciled through Jesus Christ and God's forgiveness. But to avoid some of the other consequences in life, there are just a few uh, strategies that, we, that I want to cover real quickly. Um, one is we want to avoid tempting situations. All right, we just want to steer clear of them. When we start dipping our toes into things, when we start walking next to sin and sidling up next to it, it's dangerous. It doesn't mean that we have sinned by walking next to sin, but boy, that is a rough path to continue. So we want to avoid tempting situations. And I do wonder whether David knew that that was a tempting situation when he was up on that roof looking around. I just wonder. Again, argument from silence. Uh, One of the other things that we want to do is replace. If I tell you, don't think about a donut, what are you going to think about? A donut, right? Don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't... What are you thinking about as you're saying that to yourself? 
lust. Right? So life is not just about, about not doing things. It is about what are you doing. So if you're struggling with a certain lust, maybe that's about money, sex, whatever. Right? What are you doing? Don't just say, well, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to think about that. Do something. Pray. Read scripture. Call someone. Exercise. I mean, something. Do something positive, not just focusing on the negative. Three is come clean early. Right? Break, break that chain early on. Talk to somebody. If you are struggling with someone, or even better yet, before you struggle with something, recognize some of the triggers that you might have for sins. Again, whether that's sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever. Right? We usually know. And I'm feeling pretty depressed right now. This would be a, an, an opportune time for Satan to get his hands in my life and present me with some opportunities to sin. You know, brother, could, would you pray for me? We want to surround ourselves with some people that will call us on things. Right? This might be in a community group. This might be neighbors. This might be friends. Right? People who understand, who understand the concept of sin and will call you out on it. Say, hey, Dave, I've noticed you kind of withdrawing from a lot of the people you normally hang out with. Is everything okay? No, as a matter of fact, it's not. Thank you for noticing. That's the kind of relationships that we want. It's hard sometimes. When I want to sin, I want to pull back from everybody. Kind of like David did, or at least seems to have done. Right? You pull back from people. Kind of hide in the darkness. Isolation makes it easier to sin. We also want to count the cost. Uh, We've said this before, I'll say it again. We sin because we think it's worth it at the time. It's the only reason we do it. Sin is a liar. If we truly understand the cost of what... If we truly understood the cost, we wouldn't ever sin. And yet we think it's worth it at the time. If David could have looked ahead at the disaster and the consequences of his actions, do you think he would have, do you think he would have stopped way up here? I hope so. I, I sincerely hope so. Because purposely going forward, knowing all of the consequences, would just be that hardness of heart. And yet sometimes we still do it. And at that point, we want to confess, we repent and move forward. Not move on like it never happened, but we want to move forward. So we want to break that chain before we break something else. As I've said before, our sin always breaks something. Always our relationship with God. Many times there are, there are other profound consequences that we experience because of it. 
But someone dies because of our sin. Us, somebody else. But Jesus did. And with that in mind, we have an opportunity during these next couple songs to participate in communion. It's the representation of what Jesus did for us. His body hung on a cross so that God could mete out the punishment that we deserve for our sin on his one and only son. Jesus becoming sin on our behalf. The man who knew no sin becoming sin. Can you imagine that? Because he loved us so much. And so during these next two songs, if you want to go back individually or with your family, take a piece of that bread and dip it in the juice that represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And to partake of that, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, is an awesome reminder of what he did for us. And it would be a fantastic time if there's some repentance that needs to happen or some confession to God that needs to happen, maybe even somebody else. That would be an appropriate time. And let's celebrate the hope. This, this, is a, this is a dark chapter. There's, there's no way around it. It's just dark. But the light that comes through faith in Jesus Christ is that hope that can continually encourage and fulfill us and give us that strength to resist the temptation and break that chain.